everybody. Today we are actually celebrating something else. Um, January, this is one year since two churches became one, which is a huge deal. Yes. Woo! Celebration. Um, uh, for those of you who are newer, head to our church blog to read all the story. But what happened in January of 2023 is that Mill City Church adopted Elam Church. Now we're here in historic Elam Church and became one community, which I will just say is like one of the coolest experiences of the Holy Spirit I've ever experienced in my life. It was so powerful. There's so many things I could say, but I don't want to start crying, so I'm not going to. But I would love to talk about it for a long time. Some of you know. But. Huge celebration because God's done something awesome and it hasn't come without sacrifice and without grief and a lot of things, but it has also come with some deep joy and appreciation for things that only God could do. And so I thought the best way we could celebrate that besides the treats that are in the great room and the balloons is to just have like a, a thankfulness time. So I have a liturgy that I got from the Common Book of Prayer, kind of adapted it for us. So if you're willing, if you're able, could you stand and we could just read this liturgy of thanksgiving to God together? All right. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made. We thank you for the unity you have given us by the power of your spirit. We bless you for all that you have done and continue to do through your church. But above all, we thank you for your immeasurable love displayed in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for your generous grace and for the hope of glory. And we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts, we may give you praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking in the way of Jesus all our days. We dedicate our lives and this community to you. To the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be honor and glory throughout all generations. Amen. Can you just celebrate together today? Woo! All right, you can have a seat. Um, I'm sure there was plenty of TV show ideas shared. Some of you were thinking through which ones we share at church and which ones we share in the great room after church. But um, I, I don't watch a ton of TV because I want to make sure it's like really good. And so when I find a show I really love, I, I'm like loyal. And so I have just finished an eight-year journey brought to me by the Netflix drama The Crown. Yes, it's been deep. It's been meaningful. Um, I, I know a lot of people watch TV shows for different reasons. Um, one of the reasons you watch TV shows, I think, is because you're looking to identify with the characters, kind of like you find them relatable. I don't find the royal family relatable whatsoever. Like, I'm into it because it's so unusual to me. Um, I mean, the family drama, we all have that, but my goodness. For them. Anyway, so if you don't know about the crown, it's following the, the reign and the life of the late Queen Elizabeth II, and it just finished, and I was loyal to it. I think as an American, like all of the pomp and circumstance, like so different to me, right? I'm experiencing all of these things on the screen, all the horses and the curtsies and the castles and the little hats that are big hats, so different, and I just love it. I love all of the grand and the regal things. It was just really fun. Unfortunately, I don't think that my British accent got any better during those eight years. So that's kind of a bummer. But 
I think I like this show and so many other shows because there's this part of me that just loves to think about these grand stories. And there's this part of me in the core of who I am that longs to be a part of a grand story. And I think that's something that so many of us feel. I think about these grand stories, some of them that are completely fictional, of course, and there's tales of mythical creatures and lore and all these things, and I'm so drawn to it. And I wonder if how many of us are drawn to various intriguing narratives because at our core, there's this longing to be a part of something more. There's this longing to be a part of a story that's profound. And there's this longing that we have to be a part of something that matters. Something that really matters. And as we start this new year, of course we want our days to matter, don't we? As we step into 2024, like we want it to matter. There's going to be all those to-do lists and school assignments and, and work projects and the things that have to happen for the kids and all that kind of stuff. And we want there to be something more about that than just checking those complete. Like we want it to matter. We long for a deep, meaningful story to be a part of. And on a hard day, if we're honest, there's times when we want to escape from the story that we're living. So I wonder, this year, this question, what if this year was the year that we realized how deeply our lives matter when it comes to what God is doing in the world? What if this was the year that we realized how deeply our lives matter to what God is doing in the world? What would it look like to step into this new year recognizing that we are joining in the most profound, most powerful story that ever has been and ever will be told? This is the question I have for us because this is what longing that we have, I think, is something that so many people have had a tale as old as time. The longing, I'd say, for something meaningful, for something more, and for something that matters because I think God made us that way. I think God created us for that. And so all the way back to this time when people, these men and women dropped everything when this Jesus guy comes on the scene, I think maybe that longing helps it make sense why those people would do that. Because they were wondering, is this Jesus guy the more that we've been longing for in our lives? And so last year, in September, we began this conversation through the Gospel of Mark. And as we went through the Gospel of Mark, this is one of the versions of the story of Jesus' life on earth. And in the very first chapter of Mark we saw that Jesus comes right on the scene and he's beginning his ministry. Mark skips baby Jesus. Mark skips adolescent Jesus who runs away from home and ends up at the synagogue. Sometime, ask my husband about the time he ran away from home to Bible camp when he was grounded. Hilarious. <laughs> but only the cool kids run away from home to the synagogue or Bible camp. That's what we're learning from this. But here's the thing. Mark just skips all that. He skips all of those things and he jumps right into Jesus' ministry and jumps right into Jesus kind of saying his main point, his big phrase, unlocking his mission, setting the world on a totally different trajectory. And it's right in Mark 1.15. Jesus says this, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So I think it's a little challenging for us to understand today when people heard Jesus say that, what would they have been thinking about? Because what we do know is that when they hear the kingdom of God or the kingdom, they wouldn't be thinking of the United Kingdom and Queen Elizabeth or King Charles, right? Like some of us might think, especially if you just finished watching The Crown. Anyway, 
And if some of us heard the word kingdom today in 2024, our minds might go to associating things like uh, Narnia or Middle Earth or Camelot or Arendelle or one of these mythical kingdoms, right? Because in America, we probably talk about frozen kingdom more than any other kingdoms, you know. And when those listening to Jesus heard this, they wouldn't have thought about any of that stuff. When those first people heard Jesus say, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news, their minds would have gone to these words from prophets like Isaiah who had spoken about the Messiah, Messiah, Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus was born. They would have gone right away to passages like Isaiah 52 where it says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. When they heard Jesus say the kingdom of God has come, they wouldn't be thinking of a mythical kingdom. They wouldn't be thinking of a human monarchy. They would think our God reigns. And when they heard those words, it would have meant a lot to them because that's not what it felt like for them as they lived occupied by Rome who were oppressing them and controlling their every move. And so this idea that our God reigns, that God sees us, that God cares about us, that would have mattered so much. They would have thought when Jesus said those words, about how God was going to be the leader that they always longed for because they had a long line of human monarchs that had failed them. So when Jesus gave this declaration and his ministry began, now we can maybe understand why some of these fishermen dropped their nets and just followed or why some of these women went and found their family uh, savings to be able to finance Jesus' mission throughout the time that he was living this mission. Some of us listening to this now we would wonder, like, why were they willing to do that? But when you think about what Jesus was declaring, we might understand this. The meaningful story that they longed for, they were like, I think we're finding it in Jesus. And so they became the first followers, and they grew to be more followers and more followers until here we are today, people seeking to live the way of Jesus thousands of years later. And so when we look back at Mark, we went through Mark all the way to chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be. And we look all the way through there. We skipped Advent because, remember, we had to go to a different gospel because Mark skips baby Jesus. And now we're back in chapter 8 of Mark. And we're going to be in 8 and 9 today if you want to follow along. But we'll have it up here on the screen as well. Where we left off, we were looking at another powerful declaration, the one, Mark 1.15. But now there's this other powerful declaration of Jesus in Mark 8 kind of at the, the center of the book. Jesus says in Mark 8, 34, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Jesus makes it clear that the invitation he has is to be all in, right? To give him your life. And if you do, you'll receive everything that you need and more. And again, he declares good news, right? So you hear the good news in Isaiah. Good news, Jesus says in Mark 1. And here he says again, the sake of the good news, the good news of the kingdom is the, is the, the breadth of that statement. Jesus is saying the good news of the kingdom is going to be worth investing it all. It has the greatest return on investment. That's what we talked about in November, the greatest ROI. And as we head into chapter 9, we see this core theme of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God, right here in verse 1. So if you have verse 1 with you, you'll see right here what Jesus says. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. 
the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God, everything Jesus said and did was about this gospel or this good news of the kingdom of God. He said it was worth giving your whole life up for this. And so I have some questions today that I think are critical for us. If Jesus said the core of what it means to be a disciple is to give up your life for the good news of the kingdom of God, then we have some questions, in my opinion, that we should all be able to answer. Okay, here they are. The first one is, what does Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? The next one is, what does it look like to give your life for the kingdom of God, if that's the invitation? And then finally, kind of connected to what I said earlier, how do we know that it all matters in the grand scheme of things? How do we know why does the kingdom of God matter for us today? I think these are valid questions and today I want us to answer them and to be able to answer them well because it's so critical to Jesus so I think it's critical for us. And as we continue on in the book of Mark, this is a foundational understanding for us as we talk about the way of the kingdom. So let's look today at chapter 9 a little bit further. We're going to read a story that's commonly called the Transfiguration. And what I want to invite you into is you can follow along on the screen or on your Bible or you could just close your eyes and imagine being there. Try to imagine seeing what we see these disciples are able to take in. Okay? So again, Jesus says in verse 9-1, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. It's kind of a teaser statement. Who gets to see that? Well, they don't have to wait long. Who's chosen? Verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. There they saw the kingdom of God come. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then verse 6 says, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And I can resonate with that. You know, you just say whatever you think comes out. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And they were coming down the mountain. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. And here in verse 13, uh, Jesus is actually referring to John the Baptist as the new Elijah, and he has already come, as we saw earlier in this book. And uh, the power of that community, the powers have already taken his life. And so this story is this powerful experience. I don't know if you were trying to imagine it, but I think it's nearly impossible to imagine this transfiguration moment. That's kind of a deep theological word. There is no way to totally imagine what Peter and James and John saw, but the the description of the transfiguration in other gospels say that Jesus' face shone like the sun, like Jesus was shining. Or it says that that, uh, Peter talks about when he was there, he was the eyewitness to Jesus' majesty. And so perhaps the best way to explain what was happening was like Jesus' divinity was breaking through his humanity. 
Like it was this moment of Jesus being fully God and fully human. And it's like his, his like divine majesty was like showing through his human skin suit. Like this is what they were experiencing, okay? It's mind-blowing if you think about it. And then it says his clothes were as white as they could possibly be, which is definitely supernatural because nobody walks up a mountain, dusty mountain, and still has white clothes. So that was God. And so there is this incredible thing happening. But you can kind of see why it's tough for them to articulate something so monumental. Now, the transfiguration, this, this moment, it's one of the most theologically profound few verses. And here's why. If you look back and you can see this, the story of the transfiguration pulls together this series of events throughout the entire story of God from beginning to end. You can look at it. You can see in this one event, we see Moses and the Exodus story going up the mountain. The incarnation, Jesus becoming human, fully God and fully human. Jesus' baptism, God's voice. Jesus' resurrection, when he's going to come back from the dead. And Jesus' second coming to restore all things. All of that is just in that powerful story. And it helps us realize why the transfiguration is a foreshadowing of Jesus' resurrection. And here's a, a theological way to think about this. The transfiguration and the resurrection together inaugurate and are the arrival of the kingdom of God. That's what's happening, this powerful combination of events. So it brings to this moment, this, this grand story is set in motion in a new way and as Jesus is transfigured before their eyes, he's about to come down from that mountain and tell everyone how they're invited to be a part of the greatest story that's ever told. So again, we have our questions, the ones I think we need to answer today. What does Jesus mean by the kingdom of God, this, this powerful reality that was inaugurated when he had the skin suit situation? What does it look like to give your life for the kingdom of God? And why does the kingdom of God matter for us today? And these questions are so important that I'm going to just give you guys a warning right now. And that is that the rest of this time, most of it, is going to feel like what we often hear called seminary for everyone, okay? Seminary for everyone is pastor school. Most of us went there. We dig deep into scripture and theology. I loved it. And I think there's times when we need to dig just as deep, if not deeper, into some of these ideas because it helps us to actually practically live out the way of Jesus in our everyday lives. Because I don't know if you have noticed, but it is getting increasingly complex to follow the way of Jesus in our world. And so we want to wrestle with these things. So if it feels like you're in a little bit of a theology lesson for a minute, you are. And... I have even put notes on our blog, if you go to the hub, some notes for you so you don't have to write everything down. I put all the places, the scriptures are all there, everything I'm talking about, so you don't have to worry about it. Um, but whether you've heard the phrase, the kingdom of God, for the first time today, or many times, I feel that we should all be able to explain this to anyone. Everyone in this room is smart enough to do that, and I believe that we can. And so that's what I want us to do, deep dive on the good news of the kingdom of God. All right, are we ready for this? You got to buckle up. It's going to feel theoretical for a little bit, but I promise you, the very end, very practical application, okay? Literally at the very end, but it's going to come. You're going to know what you can do about this today, what you can do about this tomorrow, and I hope that you can feel empowered by understanding and being able to answer these questions, okay? So are we ready for this? Okay, we're doing it anyway, so, all right. First question, what does Jesus mean by the kingdom of God, all right? The simplest way I would put it is the sovereign reign and rule of God which is breaking into our world. Okay? The sovereign reign and rule of God which is breaking into our world. God is loving. God is gracious. God is compassionate and patient and good. And God's beautiful and powerful creation is being torn apart 
by evil and brokenness and chaos, and God longs to set it right. And so King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, inaugurates the kingdom of God to begin to bring back the order and the peace and the fruitfulness. The kingdom establishes God's wisdom. No other leader could ever be as wise, even close. God's wisdom and reign over all creation is established by the kingdom of God. This is the greatest act of rescue and healing as Jesus becomes a human who is also God, right? We see that in the transfiguration. But also, Jesus conquered death on the cross through his resurrection. And the inauguration is set in motion by these two things, right? The inauguration of the kingdom that is still coming in our midst. It was inaugurated then. It's coming in our midst now. And someday it will come fully when Jesus comes to restore all things. Now, just very plainly, whenever wrong things are made right, the kingdom of God is breaking into our world. Whenever chaos and disease and hatred and lies are overcome by peace and healing and love and truth, that is the reign of God breaking into our world. We see it break through, don't we? Even though it's not fully here yet, it has to break through the chaos. But we see it. And so theologians sometimes say this is the already but not fully yet kingdom of God. So let me give you an example. Have you ever been driving on one of those highways like the one to South Dakota where it's like the Corn Palace? Right? The Corn Palace is coming. Or like where's the, where, where's the road that has that big ball of twine? Like you're going to Wilmer or something? I've stopped at the Corn Palace. I haven't been tempted by the twine yet. So I don't know. But, but when you're on the road and you're driving, it's like you feel like every minute there's another sign that's like, visit the Corn Palace. The Corn Palace is up ahead. Big ball of twine, big ball of twine. Keep coming, keep it. exit 75, whatever it is. And you're being prompted to think that up ahead, there's going to be this attraction. And you can't wait to see it, right? Woo, corn. It is actually relatively interesting. But the point is, <laughs> compared to the relatively underwhelming roadside attractions I just mentioned, when Jesus returns to bring the kingdom fully, we're going to be overwhelmed with the goodness of God. There is these signs of the kingdom breaking in, saying, up ahead, there's something great coming. This is what our future hope is. The kingdom of God is such a powerful concept. You can see why I'm struggling to define it because we can't be too careful to define it too small. Jesus used metaphors to help us understand it. He talked about the kingdom of God. He said it was like a banquet like a mustard seed, like a tree, like a treasure in a field, like a net gathering fish, and on and on. <laughs> These are beautiful metaphors. They have this deep meaning that we could talk about forever because they're so mysterious. So I invite you into the tension of the mystery of the kingdom of God that can't always be fully divine, defined because that's how incredible God is and what God's doing. But I do want you to notice that Jesus doesn't use metaphors or images that one might expect for the kingdom or this concept of a, a kingdom. He doesn't explicitly use this idea of a monarchy with a hierarchy. He doesn't use a picture of an army or a political movement that's taking over. Jesus is a new kind of king of a new kind of kingdom. And so he's using completely different images than anybody would have imagined. And he's making it clear that the kingdom of God is not a kingdom with a human king or president or leader. Jesus is the only true leader, and the rest are just followers. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom with a physical boundary or a territory. The, the kingdom of God can transcend any human boundary or border. The kingdom of God is not a country 
or a human nation. The kingdom of God is made up of people of every tongue, tribe, and nation that will be singing glory, glory, glory together. That's the picture we see in Revelation. The kingdom of God is not financial wealth or human power or authority. It's the spiritual power that comes from the name of Jesus that is more powerful than any of the powers that the world can summon. There are many kingdoms in this world that we live in, right? I often call them the little kingdoms. There's lots of little kingdoms. And that's the way we organize our world, right? It's the, the countries and territories and nations and governments and organizations and all the ways that we organize our own lives. Sometimes we have our own little kingdom that we want to have control over. And these are not inherently bad. Humans organize our world in ways that help us function within it. That makes sense. Sometimes the little kingdoms follow the way of the kingdom of God, but most of the time they don't. But we shouldn't expect the little kingdoms to operate like the kingdom of God because there are no little kingdoms that even compare to the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Mark 8 that if you lose your life for me and the good news of the kingdom, then you will save it. Those listening to Jesus say those words that first time, just like us today, they lived in the little kingdoms. They had to operate in them just like we do. They had the same tension that we do. That's part of life, to figure out how we operate in the little kingdoms while we look for the kingdom of God in our midst. But it is unhelpful to think that we can put our trust or our faith in the little kingdoms as though they're going to behave like the kingdom of God. They're not going to most of the time. And Jesus didn't encourage his followers to try to get the kingdom of Rome to become like the kingdom of God. He's like, yeah, we got to deal with that, but that's not going to be the kingdom of God. That's not even a question. He invited them, their families, their communities, their very lives to be given over to this kingdom of God. They were the ones who were going to participate in what God was doing in the world. Not try to get these other kingdoms to be like the one true kingdom that will last forever. And then he commissioned this community that we now call the church to live out that mission together. And so Jesus' followers in his church, when we live the way of Jesus, the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, we are often going to look pretty different than the little kingdoms that we're surrounded by. I mean, not always, but often. Okay, I'm almost done with question number one, and the other two go fast, so just stick with me here. Uh, one of my favorite theologians on this, and I put this in the, in the notes, is N.T. Wright. One of my favorite theologians on this concept of the kingdom of God. There's a lot of good things from a lot of different people. But he often calls the kingdom of God the upside-down kingdom. Because compared to all the other little kingdoms, it seems kind of upside down sometimes. It seems backwards or it seems like a reversal or completely opposite. And we see this when Jesus says that the kingdom of God, you know, the last shall be first. Or the kingdom belongs to these little children who have no power or authority or wealth. Or when Jesus says those who are blessed are the weak, the peacemakers, the merciful, rather than the powerful and the elite and the wealthy. And so this is what I mean by this question. What is the kingdom of God? Why, what does it mean? So then question number two. Told you we get there. What does it look like for us to give our lives for the kingdom of God? The simplest way I can put it is this. We let go of trying to live our own independent story and we center and orient our lives around the story of the kingdom of God. We let go of the story and the narratives of the little kingdoms that we so easily are drawn to and we say, that's not the stories that are going to define my life. The story of Jesus and the kingdom of God, the way of the kingdom, is going to be what I orient my life around. Because it's the greatest story ever told. I mean, evil has been defeated and is being defeated by love. 
God's creation is being healed from brokenness and it's going to be restored to its original glory. And then Jesus says that it's going to be even more enhanced. We see in Revelation this beautiful picture of God's creation enhanced even deeper than its original glory. And Jesus' followers, us, are commissioned and equipped to put that victory over evil and restoration project into practice now. Don't have to wait. We get to join in right now. We are rescued by Jesus so we can join the rescue team. The greatest story that we could be a part of. We have spiritual authority in the name of Jesus, not on our own. Again, remember this kingdom doesn't have any authority for the, the humans, just the authority in the name of Jesus. And the work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit equip us to join in this redemption mission of God until Jesus returns to restore all things. So I'll put this as plain as I can. When we join in making wrong things right, when we choose empathy over judgment, forgiveness over anger, Love over revenge, we are participating in the kingdom of God. When we choose generosity over selfishness, peace over conflict, when we choose the way of Jesus over the way of all the little kingdoms, we are joining in bringing the kingdom of God to this earth. But I think that brings up the final question is, why does this matter? Like, why does this matter? Of course, when you're kind or generous to somebody, it matters to them. That's really good. But the promise of the kingdom and the greater story that God's telling is so much deeper. Like it's much, much deeper. And so I want to read a quote from N.T. Wright, the theologian I mentioned earlier. It's actually kind of long and I was like, ah, but it's my favorite quote, okay? So it'll be worth it. Are you ready? I have it in the notes on the, if you want to read it later. He's talking about why the kingdom of God matters for us today. This is what he says. Every act of love Gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of God's creation, every minute spent teaching a child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will make. That is the logic of the mission of God. God's recreation of his wonderful world, which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, means that what we do in Christ by the power of the Spirit in the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. I'll sum it up in one sentence. When we live the way of Jesus and join the way of the kingdom, what we do matters forever. When we live the way of Jesus and join in the way of the kingdom, what we do matters forever. And I can't say it without the sandlot thing in my head, forever. And I know that's mysterious. And it's like, what exactly does that mean? But how amazing is that? That it matters. Everything. It matters forever. Every day doesn't have to start with zero again. Some of you, that's the thing, right? Like, oh, I got to start again doesn't start at zero because what you did yesterday and the day before lasts forever when you're joining in what God's doing in the world. And we're putting up those signposts, not just the corn ones, like we're putting up the signposts on the side of the road that says one day Jesus will return and restore all things and there'll be no more crying and pain and suffering because Jesus will make all things new. 
And the good news is, it's not up to us to build the kingdom. That would be a bad plan. God's the grand architect. God doesn't need us, but God chooses to use us. What a cool thing. I think about my nephew Amos, he's nine, and he's always like, can I help you with that project at your house? And I'm like, you know, technically I could do this without him, for sure. But when he joins me and we do a project together, he's actually becoming very helpful. And the point is, is like, when it's complete, it's not just a project that's mine. It's like an Auntie Steffi and Amos project. And the meaning is so deep. And so God doesn't need to use us, but God decided to invite those who follow Jesus to be a part of the grand story, to be a part of the restoration project. And we get assignments that sometimes might feel small at times. Other times they feel big, but they're a part of the whole. Like they genuinely matter for what God's doing forever. N.T. Wright uses this illustration of God like this architect who's got this grand blueprint that our little brains wouldn't even be able to understand. And the blueprint is for the grandest cathedral ever to be built. And he's hired stonemasons and, and jewelers and artisans and carpenters to craft every piece according to the plan. And so each of those stonemasons and carpenters are getting their little assignment and they're vaguely aware that other people are working on their assignment and they know there's whole other departments that they don't even know about that are working as well. And when they're finished, they take their stones or their window or their carvings and they hand them over without having seen the architect's grand plan. But they trust the architect. And the work that they have done will not be wasted because they trust the architect is going to use it. That every part matters. Every small work comes together to create this grand masterpiece. They are not creating the cathedral. They're creating for the cathedral. We are not the ones building the kingdom, thank God, but we are building for the kingdom. And we can trust Jesus that one day we will see that everything that we've joined in will be a part of that kingdom when he comes fully to this earth. And here's something important. What we do in the present is not to earn love from God. There's nothing that you could do to earn that. What we do now does not get Jesus' approval or his affirmation because that's not the point. We get to be a part of this grand story because we're already loved. We're already forgiven. And that's why we're invited to join in what God's doing now and forever. We already have that. If we choose to follow Jesus, to put our trust in him, like he said, if you're willing to give it all for me, then I'll give you everything that you need. Trusting that Jesus is the true leader and that the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that will last when all the other little kingdoms fade away. Your life matters. You don't have to earn anything from God. Jesus loves you because he loves you. If you receive that love, then you just get to join in because God gives us a chance to be a part of it. Your story matters in the grand story that God is telling. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Jesus is a new kind of king of a new kind of kingdom. And when we live the way of Jesus and join the way of the kingdom, what we do matters forever. I promised you I'd give you something very practical, okay? I know that was a lot. Again, the notes, check it out on the hub. Um, so here's my practical takeaway for us today. I want you to all be able to know and think about what we talked about, but here's three things. Seek, ask, join. Seek, ask, join. Jesus says the kingdom is in our midst right now. He says that instead of worrying about life, as we often have the propensity to do, Jesus says seek first the kingdom of God and trust God with the rest of it. And so seek Look for the kingdom breaking in. 
When you are looking around you and what seems like Jesus, if it seems like that's kingdom stuff, move towards that. When you're catching yourself doom scrolling or overcome with the latest headlines, seek first the kingdom. I love like Fred Rogers says, like look for the helpers, right? Look for compassion, look for love, look for justice. Seek first the kingdom. Second, ask. Jesus said that we should pray that the kingdom of God would come on this earth. Now, like not just in the future. And so ask, pray that God's kingdom, God's reign would come in every situation. Personally, locally, globally. What would it look like for God to reign in your marriage or in your family? What would it look like for God to reign in your workplace or in your neighborhood? Pray specifically for those things, that God's kingdom would come in those situations, that God's will would be done. Jesus says we can ask. And then finally, join. Seek, ask, join. Join in. Participate in what God is doing. Knowing that every action of love and justice and faithfulness lasts forever. When you don't know where to start, just start with what's right in front of you, the people that you see every day, the the people God put right around you, the opportunities. Ask God for wisdom. God will give it to you. How do you join in the kingdom in your workplace, in your neighborhood? That you'd be empowered maybe to speak up or maybe to not say something that you want to say. God will lead you in ways, tangible ways, to love neighbors who are super different than you. God's kingdom is so powerful that God will empower you to have a civil conversation with someone on the opposite side of politics than you. That's how powerful the kingdom of God is. Nervous laughter. (laughs) When we join in the kingdom, bringing generosity physically, or sometimes it's with our time, people are lonely and we can be with them. That is things that matter forever, you guys. Jesus is a new kind of king of a new kind of kingdom. And when we live the way of Jesus and join in the way of the kingdom, what we do matters forever. So I'm going to have the band come up and I just believe that God created us to long to be part of something more and something meaningful and something that matters because we do get to be a part of that. And so I want to close today doing something that many of you have maybe done many times and maybe it's new, but just saying the Lord's Prayer together. I'm hoping that Seminary for Everyone Sunday about the kingdom gives it a little bit of a deeper meaning for you. So if you're able, would you stand and we can read the the version of the Lord's Prayer that will be up here on the screen together before our time of response and worship and communion. Let's read this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.